Now, loved ones, let's turn to God's Word. Exodus 31, 12 through 18 is our Old Testament reading this morning. Exodus chapter 31, 12 through 18. It's page 79 in the church Bible. In these words, the Lord is calling his people to holiness, and he's telling them that he is the one who will sanctify them. Exodus 31, 12 through 18. Let's hear God's word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now to our New Testament reading and our sermon text, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. page 1050 in the church Bible. So we saw in Exodus the Lord's promise to sanctify his people, and we see the same promise here in 1 Thessalonians 5, a command to be holy and a promise that the Lord himself will make his people holy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 18, hear God's very word. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's infallible word. Let's ask his blessing on it now. Lord, I have no wisdom to speak. And we, your people, have no wisdom to hear your word in ourselves and understand it and grasp it and 
and, and submit ourselves to it. Only you, by your Spirit, can do the supernatural work of speaking your word to us and causing us to have ears to hear, hearts to believe, and wills to obey. We pray you do this then, by your Spirit. For Christ's sake. Amen. Come now to the end of this letter in 1 Thessalonians that we've been studying for some months now, uh, since June. So let's, uh, let's just do a quick recap to situate ourselves and see where we're at. Um, some, of the, some of the big themes of the letter we've seen so far are that this letter is about how to live, to please God in the midst of trials as we hope for God's return and wait for His return. We've seen the Thessalonian church was a church under persecution, going through much suffering. Uh, they were being cut off from their community, cut off from family members as they came to Christ. They were losing influence. They were losing status. They were losing connections. They were losing friends in coming to Christ. Some of them maybe even lost their lives. Or at least some of them have died, as we saw recently. Some of them have fallen asleep, the text tells us. So this is a church under persecution, but Paul is calling them hope in the resurrection, hope in eternal life. It's coming Stay faithful. Live with your eyes on God, not on the world around you. Please Him, not yourselves and not the world. And as we've unpacked this, we've also seen that there's this wonderful relationship that we get a window on in this letter, isn't there? Between Paul and this church. He was only there for a few weeks with them, but he's developed a strong relationship with them. He speaks to them much of his love for them, and he speaks of their love for him, and what an encouragement that is. He calls them his, his, uh, his glory and his crown. And he calls them to see one another that way, to see one another as your glory, your crown, your hope of boasting before the Lord. And we've, we've seen the, the hope that pervades this letter. Uh, that, that is this hope in the resurrection that's coming and how that drives us to love one another better and how it gives us this picture of what a pastor's relationship with a church should be and a church's relationship with a pastor should be. And we've seen this, this, uh, this church living under the gospel of Christ. Yes, they're under persecution and hardship, but they're living under the gospel, the hope they have in Christ. And they're living out of that in love for one another and for Paul. Now, as we draw to the end of the letter, um, what we've seen most recently is Paul really honing in on this heavenward focus, calling them to remember Christ is coming soon and you'll be raised with him. Uh, but then as he, draw, as he comes to the end here, um, he suddenly shifts gears. At least it feels that way. And it can almost feel drastic as you're reading through the letter. Suddenly we turn from um, him talking about the, the resurrection and our eternal hope in Christ and Christ's return and all that. And then he switches to a bunch of really practical stuff uh, here in the closing, the closing uh, verses of the book. And at first glance, it looks like these um, applications are just this random assortment of things as, as Paul is thinking, okay, what were all the things I wanted to make sure I got in there and told them to do? Um, it looks like birdshot more than a sniper bullet. It, it's, a, it's a scattering of commands uh, to the church. But if we look more closely at it, we see that uh, Paul is, is pointing our attention to how we are to live as a church. So, so he's been talking about this great hope we have, the resurrection, the return of Christ. And he's saying, based on that hope, Here's, the, here's, here's what it means practically for you as a church. And he points out to them 
three aspects of their life together as a church in these verses. He talks to them about how they uh, need to live towards their leaders, how they need to live towards each other, and how they need to live towards the Lord because of the hope that they have. So that's how we're going to outline the text this morning and work through it together, looking at these commands and unpacking them together. Our duty to our leaders, our duty to each other, and our duty to the Lord. All right, so first, what does our Christian calling, what does the gospel, what does our hope mean for how we live towards our leaders? What's our duty towards our leadership? Paul gives the Thessalonians two commands in, uh, in, in, uh, regarding how they are to uh, act and live towards those who are leaders. In verses 12 to 13, he says you have to respect your leaders. And then in verse 25, he tells them to pray for their leaders. Verses 12 to 13, he says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Our culture is not known for uh, loving authority. Um, we're, we're, we like individualism. We like to be independent. That's what we're known for. And that's what comes naturally to us. And it might come, it might be, it might be most the case with regard to spiritual things. For a lot of people, religious belief is little more than a matter of personal preference. It's not about what's true, it's about what you like. And don't you tell me what I should believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. This cultural attitude can often come into the church, can't it, and, and infect our own hearts. We can think that pa- a pastor or elders aren't there to tell me what God has to say to me, They're there to meet my needs, satisfy my expectations, and don't demand something from me that I don't feel like giving. And we we believe we all have the Holy Spirit in us. We all have God's Word, and uh, we're all equals before God. How can one Christian have authority over another Christian? That can be a response to this. But two things we should say. First, there's a sense in which that's true. We are all priests before God. We, uh, that's one of the things we enjoy in the, in the New Covenant. We're, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. First uh, Peter 2, 5 declares, you are a royal priesthood. We don't have rank in our church. We're all equal before God in that sense, in Christ. Romans 14, 4 says that we have... Uh, Christian liberty that we can't impinge upon and and, um, we all stand before God. He's our master. It says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So those things are true. So yes, uh, yes, there's there's some truth to the idea that uh, the church leadership doesn't have all authority over me. But at the same time, God teaches in Scripture clearly that he's given officers to his church and that those officers do have authority in his church. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12. And he, that's Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So God has given officers in his church. They aren't counted more righteous, more holy, or anything like that, but he's given them authority. Matthew 18, 18 agrees. He's, Jesus says to his disciples there, I, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Jesus is giving his disciples authority for church discipline in that passage. Or Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So we see a clear picture emerging from the New Testament, don't we? That God has given officers to his church, and they do have a God-given authority. But how does Paul describe it here in the text? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13, he describes this leadership in three important ways. First, he says, they are those who labor among you. The word means toil, hard, exhausting work. That's a good description of the elder's task and the pastor's task. It's toil. It's a joy, but it's hard work. Second thing he says here is he describes these church leaders as those who are over you in the Lord. So these leaders are working hard, and they're over you in the Lord. Uh, that, that little phrase, in the Lord, is vital to understanding this. It's both, um, it's both an extensive authority and a limited authority. Uh, the, uh, the authority extends as far as God's Word extends. And if your pastor or elders, if we're saying something that is in God's Word, you have to listen. Not because it's what we're saying, but because it's what God is saying. We admonish you for His sake, by His Word. But at the same time, we aren't going to say more than God's Word says. Paul III says these are those who admonish you, who are willing to instruct you, counsel you, correct you. Paul says, this is what a godly leader in the church looks like. This is what he's doing. So recognize them, respect them. In in verse 12, he says, recognize them. The the word means there to appreciate someone, know someone and appreciate what they've done for you. Verse 13 flushes it out. It says, esteem them highly in love. So, loved ones, this is Paul's command, God's command to us. Esteem your church leaders highly in love. Respect your church leaders. Think highly of them. Listen when we speak God's word. It's not easy, is it? Um, We're not the most experienced. Some of you have been believers for twice as long as I've been alive. Um, uh, And your leadership, we make mistakes. We sin. We offend you when we shouldn't. We say what we shouldn't say. We don't say what we should say when we should say it. We're flawed leadership. But loved ones... By God's grace, we are the leaders he's put in place here. And he calls you to respect us, and not for our sakes, but for the Lord's sake. And do it not because of who we are, but because of the work he's called us to. That's what Paul says here, verse 13. Esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. Because of what they're trying to do for you. We've been entrusted as shepherds of your souls. And we're trying to care for you and shepherd you. So esteem us for that. The second aspect of how Paul commands this church to live towards the leadership then is in verse 25. So first he calls you to respect and love the leadership God's put in place. Then he says, pray for us in verse 25. Now in verse 25, he's not commanding the church in Thessalonica, pray for your pastor and elders and uh, and deacons. He's saying, pray for us, Apostle Paul, as I'm on this missionary effort. Um, But I think we can take the principle there and say, yes, the church should be praying for its leadership. Loved ones, uh, we so desperately need your prayers. The leadership here needs you to be praying for us. The work of the ministry, 
The building of the kingdom is a supernatural work that we cannot do in any human strength or any natural resources. Only God can build His kingdom. And He's promised to. He calls us to pray and ask for His grace to do it. So pray for us. Natural gifting can't do anything good in the church apart from the blessing and grace of God's Holy Spirit. Pray we'd have strength. We need it. Pray we'd have holiness and integrity. Pray for our witness. Pray for our families. This is a vital part of of, of your calling, loved ones, in the church. Pray for us. And let us know sometimes how you're praying for us and when you're praying for us. It's a great encouragement to us. So, those are Paul's words to the church about how to live towards their leaders. The second thing, then, he highlights in these verses and these closing commands that he gives is how to live out this hope, live out your calling as Christians towards each other. The Christian hope of the return of Christ uh, shapes how we act towards our leaders and towards one another. Paul gives two basic commands here. The first is that you pursue unity with each other. In verse 13, he says, Be at peace among yourselves. He wants this church to have peace. He doesn't want them to be fighting with each other and quarreling with each other, free of conflict, sinful conflict with each other. And then in verse 15, he draws out the point further. So he mentions it in verse 13, Be at peace among yourselves. In verse 15, he draws it out. He says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what's good, both for yourselves and for all. How do you act when someone sins against you and offends you, hurts your feelings? What do you, how do you, the natural thing is to, to get upset and respond in kind. How do we act when we get cut off in traffic? Right? Our, our natural instinct is not to be gracious and forgiving and kind. It's to respond with anger. When someone gossips about us, our heart does not run quickly to want to forgive them and not ever speak an ill word about them, does it? Our hearts are, are prone to want to get back at people and nurse the grudge and wait for a chance to revenge ourselves. But that should not be how the church works. It's how the world works. It should not be how those who are called out of the world in Christ, made holy in Him and living for the eternal hope that we have in Him. That's not how the church should work, is it? How can I be bitter towards my brother in Christ when Christ is watching my heart and I live before Him. So Paul wants this church to be free of sinful conflict and, uh, and uh, people trading evil for evil. But he doesn't just want this absence of conflict here in the church. That's part of the unity he wants. He also wants an active unity, a, 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 a positive peace, we could say. Verse 15 goes on and says this, Always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So it's not enough that you just let it go and not respond evil for evil. He says, no, above and beyond that, pursue what's good for one another. And someone offends you and hurts you, it's not enough just to forgive and let it go. We have to seek what's good for all. Pursue that. Paul commands this positive peace, this active unity. In verse 26 as well, when he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. In the Roman world, a kiss was a sign you shared the same family, that you, were, that you were in a family together. And Paul is speaking here to this church. Who's in this church? Jews and Gentiles. 
who never would have associated before. Rich and poor, perhaps. Slaves and masters. Male and female. All these different social groups of society at different levels who wouldn't ever be considered a family before. But they've been brought together in Christ, made a family in Christ. And Paul is saying, you are to love one another as you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Greet each other with the family greeting. Greet each other warmly. We've been, we've been, we've been bought with the blood of Christ. Uh, God has brought reconciliation between us and Him and one another through the cross. And so we must forgive one another and, and treat one another as, as family in the church, whether we feel like we click with them or not. So, loved ones, let's pursue this together as a church. Not just an, an absence of sinful conflict, but an active unity. Build each other up and love one another. That's the first thing Paul calls us to as far as uh, uh, how we are to live towards each other in this active unity. Not responding in evil, but in good and seeking to be a family together. Then he says in verse 14, he sheds some light on how we can do this more practically, more specifically. Verse 14, he says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, Be patient with all. So seek peace together, seek unity together, and now minister God's word to each other as you do that. Minister the word of God to each other. Paul has just commanded this church to respect their leaders, submit and love to their leaders, but he doesn't want them to get the idea that the pastor is the only one who ministers the word of God to them, or that their elders are the only ones responsible to speak God's word to them. He wants them to know that they have an obligation also to speak God's word to each other. Every member of the church has an obligation to speak God's word to each other. Members aren't called to come along for the ride. Just come and attend church without getting involved. Every member has a part to play. And Paul says in verse 14, speak God's word to each other according to each member's different needs and situation. First, he wants us to be warning each other. Do we do this? Do we warn each other? Challenge each other? He wants us to. God wants us to be doing this. He says, warn those who are unruly or undisciplined. The idea is here, those who are lazy in spiritual things. We've got to know each other well enough to be able to see this in each other and, 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 and speak a word of, uh, of warning to one another. I'm so thankful for this fellowship uh, we tasted it some at another church we were at. Um, if there was a Sunday evening that my wife and I missed church, then the next Sunday or, or sometime during the week, uh, some of our friends who, would, who also went to that same church would say, we missed you guys. Is everything all right? Where have you been? Uh, and encourage us and, and, and uh, comfort us with those things. We need to be doing this, holding each other accountable by God's word. Second thing Paul says, so be ready to warn and exhort and challenge one another with God's word, not your opinion, with God's word. Then he says, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. So we need to be ready with words of comfort, ready to see those who are in need, those who are brokenhearted, those who are suffering. Uh, this, this church that Paul is writing to is filled with these people. Every church really is filled with these people. Our church is. You know who they are. Many of them, I think. Reach out to them. Build them up. Speak a word of God's word, comforting them. Remind them of God's goodness and His promises and His, 
faithfulness. And loved ones, this is for all of us in the church. Not just for the leadership, not just for the old, not just for the young. It's for all of us in this church. We all have an obligation as part of this church to speak God's word to one another. I'm not saying at all that you should feel the obligation and the burden of calling that, uh, that the elders or minister does, that I do. Um, we've been called in a unique way. I've been called in a unique way. This is, the, this is what my life is to be, speaking God's word to you. But we all have a calling to do this to one another as well, according to the other callings God has given us. Just this past week, I was uh, so encouraged um, to see this playing out in our church. You should be encouraged to, to hear this. There was a, uh, someone reached out to me and, and they said, how can I serve? How can I be doing what this is calling me to do? How can I reach out and love to my brothers and sisters? How can I be useful in the church? I don't want to just be a bystander. I want to be active in the church. And it was so encouraging to see God working in that way among us. Let's, let's seek out more of that, loved ones. All right, so... We've seen our duty to our leaders, our duty to each other. Let's look now a third at our duty to the Lord. In verses 16 to 22 here, Paul lays out how we should be living towards the Lord. He starts by saying, uh, by teaching us how we respond to God's providence in our lives. First he says, rejoice always. There's no qualification given there. We might wish there were. Um, he doesn't say uh, rejoice always unless fill in the blank with uh, wh- whatever it is we're going through. He says rejoice always. It's a command to always be rejoicing. It uh, takes guts for Paul to say this to this church, doesn't it? This is a church that's suffering deeply, and he knows it. He himself was, was uh, suffering there with him. He's not writing to a comfortable megachurch in a suburban area. He's writing to a, a fledgling church that's going through a lot. How can he command them to do this? Well, he's been laying out for them why he can give them this command, hasn't he, in his whole letter, showing them the hope that they have, and the, the, the glorious hope of heaven, of Christ's return, and the res- their resurrection in Christ. We rejoice always in the midst of our trials because we know of the hope we have in Christ. Paul makes the same connection in Philippians 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice always. The Lord is at hand. It's the same thing he's saying here in so many words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Rejoice always. Christ is coming soon. Second thing Paul says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Spend time in prayer. He doesn't mean um, that we are constantly on our knees in a formal time of prayer, but don't let that uh, don't let that excuse you from feeling the force of the command. He calls us to a constant life of prayer. That means we probably need to be doing more prayer than we are doing. Wherever we're at, I'm sure we can improve. He calls us to pray continually. We should do two things here. We should cultivate set times and habits of prayer. If we don't have them, we need to, have, we need to work on that. Uh, setting aside a time where we draw near to the Lord and we pray to Him and we make it part of the rhythm of our day. He also wants us, I think, to, to have an attitude of living before God's face and of constant dependence on Him so that moment by moment as we're going about our day, going about our work, 
We're praying, Lord, sustain me now. Help me in this, in this temptation right here. Help me to honor you and please you right here. And giving thanks to him throughout the day. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Not by accident is it that Paul moves first from saying rejoice always to saying pray always. If we're going to rejoice always, we must be praying and asking him for the grace to do it. Third thing Paul says is, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Very similar to what he just said uh, about, about rejoicing always, but, but he's wanting us to take that and, and um, uh, put it into very specific and concrete terms. To give thanks to God for his blessings. They are constant loved ones. God's blessings on us are, are more than we can fathom. Moment by moment, he bears us up by his every providence. He sustains us. Paul says, notice the ways God is blessing you and give thanks to him for them and give thanks even in the suffering that you're going through. Because even that suffering is for your good as he brings you closer to glory. Loved ones, we should, we should give thanks in all things because when we do, it helps us remember what is really true. What is really true. We have a tendency to be forgetful of God and His providence and His blessing. We take them for granted. We, we gripe at difficulty because we forget. It's His providence towards us and it's designed for our good. So, so when we stop and, and give thanks to Him, it reminds us of what is really true. Of what His providence is really doing in us and for us. Reminds us, all this is from Him. All my crosses are for Him. Every accident is from Him. So I'm going to thank Him in everything. That's how Paul starts here. Rejoice always, pray always, give thanks always. This is to be our attitude towards the Lord, especially in His providence towards us. Then he wants us also to have an attitude to the Lord where we are ready to receive His Word. And that's what we see next here. Verses 18 to 22, he says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. He starts out there by saying, don't quench the spirit. What does he mean by saying that? Well, the picture is of dousing a fire. How do we quench the spirit? Well, we quench the spirit when we don't listen to and apply to ourselves God's word. When we evade application. We hear it, but we're not going to obey it. The spirit in the Old Testament is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, in Numbers eleven twenty-five, it says this, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. So this is what the spirit does. He gives the gift of prophecy. And then in the New Testament, we see God is giving prophecy uh, prophets to his church until the point where the canon is complete, his word is complete, and all that has, needs to be said has been said. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And loved ones, so how do we understand what this means for us? Well, it means the Spirit is the one who's given us the word of God. That's what a prophecy was, a revelation from God. That's what we have in the Bible, the word of the Spirit of God. So when these words are read and preached... The Spirit takes them, and He applies them to us. 
So while the gift of prophecy is not something we have now, we're not worse off, we're actually better off by having the sure word of God in writing. We have this prophetic word. It's, it's here for us in the Bible. And what God is saying to us then, here's what it means for us in the text, don't despise the reading and the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Don't, uh, don't throw water on the work of the Spirit by not hearing God's word when it's preached or read. God's word is a dangerous thing. A sermon is a dangerous thing. We either, we either hear it and we're, we're, we're brought closer to Christ or farther from him. Our hearts are either broken more or hardened more by the word of God. We quench the spirit when we listen half-heartedly and obey partially. Be, be careful, loved ones, to heed God's word. The next thing Paul says is to test. Test the Word of God. See, if, see, see, see what the preaching and teaching, make sure it is the Word of God. Does it line up with Scripture? Does it teach, is this teaching me what the Bible teaches? Is this sermon, this article, or this book that I'm reading, is it biblical? Go look. Get in God's Word. As good Bereans, go digging in the Scriptures. See what God's Word says. And don't quench the Spirit. Heed Him. Cling to what's good. Abstain from what's evil. Hold fast to the truth of God's word. So this is our duty to the Lord. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks in his providence, and heed his revelation, heed his word. And loved ones, this is what a church under the gospel looks like. A church that's fueled by hope in the return of Christ looks like this. A church that respects its leaders and loves them. A church that loves one another. Uh, and a church that uh, is joyful and prayerful and submitting to God's providence and heeding his word, obedient to his word. But as we look at this, uh, uh, it's a tall order, isn't it? These are, there, there's some hard commands in this text. Every one of them is hard, isn't it? We're describing here a supernatural community, not a natural one. And the only way we can see this produced in ourselves and among us is if God by his work, is here blessing it. And if he's working and sanctifying, by being under his gospel. And so Paul closes the letter to the Thessalonians here, not with this salvo of commands, but with a word of promise and encouragement and the grace of God to them. Let's look now then at our final heading, the Lord's grace to us. Paul writes in verses 23 to 24, Now... May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So who's going to mature us in the faith and sanctify us? Who's going to grow our church and bless our church and, and, and make us a church that looks like this wonderful picture of a church we see here in Thessalonica? Who can do that? We cannot do it for ourselves. Paul says, the Lord is the one who sanctifies you. He is the one who's faithful to his promises, who accomplishes all your salvation, who pers- makes you persevere in this pilgrimage. We read these words earlier in Exodus thirty-one, thirteen: I am the Lord who sanctifies you. He sets us apart as holy and he works that holiness in us. We don't make ourselves holy. We cannot take one step forward in the Christian life without the Spirit of Christ. 
All our growth in becoming more like Christ comes from Him, loved ones. It's a work of God, not of ourselves. So Paul prays that God would do this for the Thessalonians. He prays that God would keep them blameless and holy, body, soul, and spirit, till Christ's return. Um, there's this glorious promise here that when Christ returns, we are going to be in Him. And so we will not be blamed for anything. We'll be blameless because of His righteousness and His shed blood for our sins. And because, uh, because of uh, the work of the Spirit to sanctify us in a life reflecting what Christ has done. But Paul's not just praying this would happen. He's, he's speaking a benediction to the church. And he's telling them, this is what God will do for you. This is God's blessing on you that He is going to do this. He cannot go back on His word. He promises them here that God Himself is faithful and He'll do it Himself. Um, I'm reminded here of those words of how firm a foundation, the last stanza, the soul that in Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to His foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. That's what the Lord says to us. I won't forsake you. I'll be faithful to every promise I've made. I will keep you to the end, till Christ returns. This is, this is how Paul closes. And then at the end of the letter, he says, finally, another benediction, grace to you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's the way he started the letter, isn't it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now at the end, he says, grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The point is that the whole of this letter and the whole of our Christian life and our church's life together is under the grace of God and the gospel. Uh, we, have to, we have to live under that gospel together, loved ones. That, that God has been gracious to us. That we have not earned any of His favor. But that He has poured out His grace on us to save us and He will continue to do so until He returns. And give us perseverance. Tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, until until we're brought safely home. So let's hope in that grace together. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we pray that you would indeed bless us by your grace and keep us by your grace. We cannot keep ourselves or sanctify ourselves. And yet you call us to be a holy people. So work in us that which you command. Help us to live lives pleasing to you with hearts hoping in heaven. This we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.